we are in week three of a series called In Transit, and it's about the ways that God can really show up in our lives so often in the moments of big transition. It seems often when things are really changing in our lives is when we have this encounter with who God is. And fittingly, uh, this past week, uh, I was working on this talk at a coffee shop over in Lafayette. I live over there, and I'd gotten in really early and carved out my little space in the corner on my table and had my headphones on, was reading and writing, and uh, had been there for a bunch of hours, and I started to get hungry. And I, creativity gets hard for me when I'm hungry. Uh, and so I packed up all my stuff and, and put it back in my backpack and walked back to my car and put my bag in there and started driving. And I was headed towards the King Supers in Lafayette right there on Baseline Road at Baseline and 287. And I'm starving, the whole reason I'm in the car. And so I'm going down baseline, and I come up to King Supers, the place with all the food, and I just cruise right on by it, right? Just, and I get another block down before I realize what I've done, and I have to, pull, I have to like pull over and get a U-turn and get back through that intersection. Uh, because as it turns out, I had just gone into autopilot mode. That's the road I drive to go home. And so I, the whole reason I'm in my car, get here, and I like drive all the way there. You guys ever do that? You ever just realize you got in the car and you show up somewhere and you're like, how did I get here, right? Let's try not to focus too much on how terrifying it is that the majority of people in this room drive a two-ton automobile with no idea where they are. Uh, you may want to walk home on a bicycle path today. Um, but that happens to me a lot. And I thought it was fitting because it turns out I kind of do that a lot in my life where I just kind of have my head down and I'm... I'm taking the next step, and I'm going somewhere, but I'm not really looking around. And every once in a while, I poke my head up, and I think, this isn't where I meant to be. And so if you are like me in that, if you ever have that sensation that, that I, you know, I've been, I've been running, and I've been working, and I've been going, but I'm not sure this is what life was supposed to look like, then I hope you'll lean in because this talk is for you. Uh, so, Jesus, thank you so much for this day, for this morning, for the opportunity to gather here together. Um, Jesus, I want to especially thank you for the way that you speak to us um, through the words of the Bible. And as we lean into some of those words right now, I pray that, that your voice would be the voice most strongly heard to each one of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are going to start with a story from the Bible. It's in a book called Acts. If you're trying to find that in your Bible, it's about like the last fifth right in there, right after a book named John. Is this book called Acts. And in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is what we're going to read, uh, we hear a story about a guy named Saul. And he's about to become a very major player in almost every page that is going to come in that back fifth of your Bible. Um, he's most often called Paul. So he starts out as Saul. His name becomes Paul, mostly because he had been hanging out with people who spoke Aramaic, and then he starts hanging out with people who spoke Greek, and that's just how they pronounced his name. Um, but he is actually the person who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. But his story does not start that way. He might be the least likely candidate for that to be true. So uh, Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Right? So this is a nice guy. He's a pleasant person that you really wanted to hang out with. Here's what we need to know about Saul. 
he's ambitious. He is driven. This is a guy who takes initiative. See, like, he didn't wait for his bosses to say, hey, take this letter, go to Damascus, bring those people back. No, he goes to them and says, this is what we're doing next, guys. And here's what, here's what was happening in Jerusalem that, that led to this, the context for this passage. Um, the, the early Christians, like the church started in Jerusalem, and they had just experienced a very major persecution. And it happened because Saul, this guy, oversaw the execution of a guy named Stephen. Stephen was one of the early leaders of the church. And after they saw that happen, a lot of the other uh, of these early Christians, they fled. They got the heck out of town. They could see that trouble was on its way. And so they have run far away. And Saul says, here's an opportunity for me. I'm going to go. I'm going to get permission and authority to go to these places that they've come. I'm going to capture them. I'm going to bring them back. He is somebody who sees the opportunity in front of him, and he takes it. He keeps advancing on his path. He's got his head down, and he's moving. Okay, verses 3 through 9. Here comes Saul's big transition moment. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. And the voice replied, I am Jesus. The one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Okay. Here's why I think this experience that Saul has, has a ton to teach each one of us about our lives right now. Because before this moment, Saul could see, but he was living like he was blind. And it took literal blindness for him to begin to really see. He was marching ahead. He was taking the steps that were right in front of him. The next opportunity that presented itself, he jumped on. He's just out there doing his job. He's actually doing his job really well. Here's the problem, though. He intended to be synced up with God. He intended to have his life going in the direction that God wanted to go. Saul was actually a part of this group of people called the Pharisees. Um, and they were uh, like this small group of people within Judaism who they tried to shape every single part of their lives exactly around how God wanted them to live. They put out an enormous amount of uh, exertion and effort to try to have their lives be aligned with the life that God wanted them to live. That was the center point of Saul's life. But somehow, he got it wrong. He wanted nothing more than to be doing those things that pleased God, and he finds himself being the leader of a persecution against the followers of God's people. Somehow, he accidentally wandered away from where he wanted to be. Do you relate to that at all? I know, that, I, I, know I can. I, pretty often, I feel like I'm the sort of person who kind of lets life happen to me, right? I just kind of like, got, I'm just kind of cruising. I'm, I'm doing stuff and I, I'm moving, but not nearly often enough do I pick my head up and really look around and think, what is the kind of vision that I have for my life? How do I want to act? Where do I want to go? 
Who do I want to be? And the, here's the problem when that happens. You can end up getting yourself really far away from where you thought you would end up, from where you intended to be. So if we were all in this room to stop right now and just do a quick and honest uh, evaluation and appraisal of where your life is right now and think back, you know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is, are you where you thought you would be? Does your life look like how you, you thought it was going to shape up? And maybe it helps to break it down into some categories. We'll start with the easy ones. Like think about uh, in your job or your, your, your work life, your career. Does it feel the way you thought it would be? Are you where you intended to be? What about in your relationships? Think, think about friendships. Think of the community that you've built around yourself. Does that look the way you hoped? Have you ended up in the spot you thought you'd end up? What about some of those really key relationships in your life, whether that's uh, with a parent or as a son, as a daughter, as a spouse? Think, think of those. When you do an appraisal, are, are you hitting the points that you hoped you'd hit? How about this one? How about with your spirit? Everybody here decided to get up and come to church in the morning, right? So there's at least some thought going into, what, what's my spiritual life look like? I, I believe that every human being is on a spiritual journey in one form or another, whether they, whether they realize it or not. So as you look at the map of your spiritual journey, are you... Are you where you thought you'd be, where you intended to be, where you want to be? Because what can happen so often is we get so caught up pursuing one thing that we end up neglecting some of the other things in our life. And all too often, we end up neglecting some of the things that matter the absolute most. Like how common is this story, right? Uh, you've got a parent of a young family, and she's... She's driven and focused in her career and doing well and advancing. She's experiencing success. She's leaning into that all because she wants to provide the best kind of life possible for her kids, for her husband. Until at some point you realize, I thought I was doing this for them, but I've almost lost my relationship with them. How common is that story? Or what about this one? Two parents who love their kids so much and they dedicate themselves to creating opportunity, to loving their kids well, to supporting them, to holding them up, to helping them realize all of their dreams. And those kids grow up and they go off to college and they move out. And now you've got these two people left in a house who look at each other and say, who are you? I don't even know you anymore. How many marriages have ended in that way? Because for too many years, all of your attention went somewhere else. And I'll bet that every person in this room, whether that, it's not necessarily your story, but I'll bet you know somebody who experienced one of those two stories. It's common. It happens all the time. But here's the truth. No person has ever meant to end up there. That is never anybody's ideal. Nobody ever thinks, that's where I want to be. But yet we see it happen all the time. We accidentally end up in a place we never meant to be. So I just wonder, how many of us in this room have some story about something 
that has taken over part of our life, that has led us to a place that we didn't imagine we were ever going to end up. So maybe it's, maybe it's you're sitting in this room and just thinking, every Monday morning, I wake up with this pit in my stomach. And the anxiety creeps up into me as I think about, I got to walk back through those doors. I got to go back to that job or that school or that class or whatever it is that, that, that this portion of our life that takes such a big amount is just sucking the life out of me, but I feel so stuck there. Or how many of us in this room have a story about a relationship with somebody who was incredibly important to us, but it just simmered with unspoken resentment? with grudges never spoken, with feelings held for way too long. You know, um, in November, my dad will have uh, been deceased for 13 years. And I was 24 when he died. But I was 14 when my parents divorced. And uh, in those 10 years between 14 and 24, I left a lot of things unspoken. I had a lot of things that I never said to my dad. I left that relationship in a pretty bad state of disrepair. I don't ever get to make that up. I think about that a lot, about the relationship I wish I had had, but it had gotten to a point of brokenness, and I didn't know what to do, and it felt like I couldn't ever make it better. How many of us have a story like that? Or maybe you're in this room, and if we look at the statistics, I know we got people in this room, and you're battling every day with some kind of addiction. Something has a hold of your life, and every day it just takes a little bit more. It takes a little bit more of your life, and it could be alcohol. It could be drugs. Uh, I know for a lot of us, it, it's spending, right? Like, candidly, that's a hard one for me. If I have a bad day or if I'm feeling insecure, I feel this overwhelming urge to go buy something. Literally this week, uh, when I was having trouble figuring out what the flow of this talk was going to be, I went and bought this shirt like, like, and it's not because I didn't have, I wanted it to match my shoes. I wanted a blue shirt to match my blue shoes. And it's not that I didn't have a blue shirt yet, but I was feeling stressed and, and I didn't quite know where to go. And like, I found myself trying to exchange money to feel a little bit better about my situation. How many of us is that true for? How many of us in this room, if I asked you right now to take your bulletin and flip it over and write down five things that you really like about yourself, have a hard time doing that. How many of us in this room, like, have a hard time believing um, that we are lovable, that we're worthy, that we have a hard time loving ourselves? What about this one? Because I'll bet this is true for a lot of us. What if you're kind of going through life and everything's fine? You know, my job's not that bad and uh, my, my family's doing okay. And we've got, I'm living the, the suburban American dream, right? Everything's okay. But somehow there's this part of me that suspects that life is supposed to be more than okay, that it, it, it lacks the richness and luster that I thought was supposed to be here, and that maybe in some vague part of my memory I remember it having before. How many of us in this room, if we take a real honest look at our life, are asking the question, how did this happen? I had different plans. I thought this was going to be different. Because see, here's what happened with Paul. Before he has this encounter with Jesus on the road, he had zeal, but he had no true north. 
He had plenty of gasoline, but he had no GPS. He was running hard, but he's running in the wrong direction. Do you ever just take the next step that's in front of you? As you head down and you're plowing forward, you're not looking up until you get down the road and you realize, you know, this, this isn't where I meant to be. And it could be you're in this room and you're feeling, honestly, I don't even know where I want to be now. But I'm real aware that this place that I'm in, this isn't it. When I was in my 20s um, for several summers, uh, I went to a place called the Boundary Waters uh, Wilderness Area. It's in northern Minnesota. It is this huge, expansive, um, very wild place. It's over a million acres of interconnected lakes and streams. And it's, it's, it's massive, it's wild, it's remote. You'll see wolves and moose and beaver and lots of eagles. And, and so I would go out there and we would go on several day long canoe and backpacking trips. And you would have to portage. If you don't know what that is, that's where you're in a canoe and then you get everything out of the canoe and one person carries all the stuff and the other person picks the canoe up on his head and then you have to walk over land with your canoe and all your stuff to pot it in. Uh, so you go like, you're way out there. And everybody who goes in there has to have a permit. And your permit defines the route you're allowed to be on. And they do that. They don't allow many people in at a time. And there's only one person or one party per route. So you know, when you're in the Boundary Waters, you will not see another person. It is. It is just you and whoever you came with and Mother Nature out there. And so this particular summer, I'm out there. And I'm with my best friend from childhood. His name is Matt and his dad. Uh, the dad's name is Steve. So it's the three of us. And Steve had been like another dad to me. I grew up at their house all the time. And so we are several days in, and we're paddling and talking and fishing and, and looking around, having a great time. Um, and I don't realize that this one day, several days in, that, that Steve has become air, uncharacteristically quiet. And so we're paddling, and then he directs us onto this little island in the middle of a big lake. And we stop, and Matt and I kind of clamor out, and we're chatting. And, but then I finally realize... You know, Steve hasn't said anything in a long time. So I look at him, and he is pouring his attention onto our map. So I ask him, I was like, hey, Steve, like, what's going on? And he says, um, guys, I don't, I don't know where we are. I haven't known for a while. So he is desperately looking at this map, trying to figure out where we are. For context, this is what a map of Boundary Waters looks like. So that white part, that's Boundary Waters. The green part, that's called Quidico. It's the exact same thing, just on the Canada side. Uh, and you get another almost 2 million acres up there. So you got 3 million acres of intercollected, interconnected lakes and streams. Like, it looks like a Smurf sneezed on a napkin, right? Like, just blue everywhere. If you zoom in on one of those maps, most of those lakes just say unnamed. And we don't know where we are. And I start to get really afraid. Because I know we're not going to see anybody else up here. And eventually, when we don't come check out, they're going to check the route we were supposed to be on, and we're not on it. My head's going to, like, how many granola bars do I have left? And what's the state of our fishing tackle? Are we going to be able to catch food to eat? Because we may be here forever. Starting to panic a little bit. And so Steve is still down there, and he's looking at the map. 
And Matt and I are desperate to try to do, do something helpful. And so we climb up to the highest point on this island. There's this kind of granite slope up there. And we get up there hoping that if we get high enough, we'll be able to see something that it will be a landmark that we can find on the map. And we climb up there, and it is just green and blue as far as the eye can see. There is nothing different. And I'm starting to, to lose hope at this point. I'm up here, and I'm like, what are we going to do? And so Matt and I, we begin to hike down. Um, and we're coming down this pitch, and we find something we didn't expect to find. There, driven down into the granite, is a metal spike. And there's no plaque. I don't know what the metal spike is. I don't know. But it does have a number on it. Uh, this, this is the spike. Took a picture of it. So we go back, and we tell, we tell Steve, hey, there's a spike in the ground. We don't know what it is. It's got a number on it. We start looking at the map. There are a couple dots on this map that have numbers on them. And we find the number that coordinates with the spike. And we don't know, I do not know that that spike and this dot on the map are the same thing, but we have nothing else to lean on and we're getting fairly panicked at this point. So we have to make the assumption that that number and this number, we're gonna count on those being the same thing. We're gonna reorient ourselves on the map based upon that and begin to paddle our way out. Turned out we were right. That spike is an international boundary marker. We were on the U.S.-Canadian border, which we were not supposed to be even close to. We were way off route. But we encountered something that was stable and foundational, and it allowed us to reorient ourselves on the map. And from that, we were able to paddle out. You, you guys, in order to get to where we want to get to in this life, we have to know from where we are starting. We got to know where we are to get to where we want to be. I actually believe that in this life, more important than um, what we do or where we go is the question, who am I becoming? It turns out, I think that in order to answer that question, to reorient ourselves around that, we also have to have an encounter with something stable and foundational. And that's what happened for Saul. Because look what happened to him. He's on, he's on his way. He's doing his job. He's doing his thing. He's paddling ahead. Doesn't even know he's lost. And a light flashes and he falls to the ground. And he hears a voice. And what does he say? He says, who are you, Lord? See, before that moment, Paul or Saul had religion, but he didn't have relationship. He had the what, he did not have the who. And this is the moment where that turns around. It took an answer to that question, who are you, for his life to get turned around. And I just believe, I believe that when life is upside down or it's stalled out, when you don't know what to do or when you're just vaguely aware, I don't think this is where I want to be, what we need then is to connect to Jesus. We need to focus on our God, not on our game plan. That's challenging. It's hard for me. I recognize that's probably hard for you because it requires something of me. It requires me to believe that God can change me. That I'm not the only player in my life. That I'm not the only one who's capable of getting myself out of a mess. In fact, I have to give up some of that control and that power and believe that God can help me. Do you need a change? Do you need a new way forward? Because if you do, that your, your best question may not be where to next or what now, but instead, 
Who can help? This is Saul's big transition moment, the point from which his life will never be the same. How many of us in this room could use a moment like that in our own lives? Because Jesus enters Saul's life, and it never looks the same again. So for Saul, it's pretty dramatic. It means he's going to spend the rest of his life moving out of kind of this, the darkness and bitterness and anger that had marked his life till then. He's going to travel the whole world telling people about what Jesus had done. But what about for us, right? Because that was, that was his story, but that's probably not our story. For most of us, living a life connected to Jesus does not mean that we quit everything that we do now, that we move to something totally new. So I actually wrote out a bunch of kind of my thoughts on what my life looks like uh, when I remain connected to Jesus compared to when I don't. But I thought to myself, you know, I've been a pastor for my entire working career. I've worked in churches exclusively. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for you to hear how some other people who don't have that story, what it looks like for them to live a life tethered to and connected to Jesus. And so I sent some emails last week to some, some friends of mine, friends who very well might be sitting next to you in this room right now, and ask them, would you share with me what, your life, what it looks like in your life to maintain that connection to Jesus? How does that change your work life, your family life, your friendships? Like, like what does that look like for you? And I got back some just beautiful things. And so I want to I read a couple of these to you. This first one is from um, a counselor, and she said, I think for me to be a follower of Jesus means to allow space to be in touch with the Holy Spirit and be able to see and feel and notice the needs of others. Who is hurting? Who is lonely? Where is there a need? To sit with my kids or people I counsel or friends and allow space for them to feel heard and loved. I think to be a follower of Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus, we are to give his children the experience tangibly of how deeply worthy they are. In order to do this, I need to be in touch with my own worth that comes only from God so that my tank isn't empty and therefore needing to be filled by who I'm liked by, who I'm admired by, what securities I have, novel experiences, etc., so that I have it to give. This one's from an elementary school teacher. Following Jesus for me is a long, wonderful journey. I used to think that the answers were quite clear, but the older I get, the fuzzier things are because I realize how much I don't know or understand. I had a pastor tell me once that my decision of which job to take wasn't the big issue. It was being God's person wherever I ended up. His words have stuck with me for many years. I used to and sometimes still want to be different to be an extrovert, to know how to host great parties, to have a gorgeous home to host dinners, to be married to an amazing man. But I'm at peace with how the Lord is molding me to be just me, beloved with all my flaws, capable of spreading his love because of his power in me. All right, last one. This is from a friend who's in the, he's in the business world as a consultant. Um, listen to what he wrote. I pursue this particular question mostly. What does the heart of Jesus care about? What Jesus cares about intensely is you. And then he says, and I love this, I'm from Georgia, so let me elaborate. And, and in the print, there are parentheticals that tell me what to do with my hands in this, so just follow with me here. He says, yes, Jesus loves all y'all. Yeah? And yes, Jesus loves 
y'all. But when it comes to following Jesus for me, he has made it clear that I am to care about you. And he says in here, pointing in the most singular of ways as if no one else is in the room. So I've translated the call of Jesus to, what does the heart of Jesus care about? And how does Jesus want me to show you that heart right now? And then I listen and act. I just wonder, do you know that Jesus loves you that way? And, and you got to step out and say like, yeah, 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 you know, I heard the song. I sang it when I was a kid. Yeah, Jesus loves everybody. No, no, not like that. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Not, not broadly, not generally, but specifically, Jesus loves you. And he knows everything about you. And he loves you anyways, right? Like, look at Saul. Literally, his job was to murder and persecute the followers of Jesus. And Jesus shows up to him and says, you know what? I won't let you keep going that way because I love you too much. And this, this part of who Jesus is, the part that knows everything about me and loves me anyways, is one of the most important parts of my life. Because I am so acutely aware of all of my own flaws. And I know it's easy from that seat to, to, to watch a pastor up on stage. Like, like, like Jim, uh, one of our, our co-pastors, is always very disparaging of himself. And you sit in there like, oh, no, he's actually great. And, and maybe you're thinking right now, no, I've met Chris. And he's really nice. He was kind to me. He listened to me. He made me feel heard. And the truth is I probably did. Because all too often I give the very best part of myself to the people I know the least. And it's the people I love the most who see the worst that I have to give. It's them that I lose my patience with. It's them who I get angry at. It's, it's in those situations where I yell or I withdraw and I withhold myself. Guys, I have problems. And Jesus sees them and he loves me anyways. Do you know that Jesus loves you like that? And it doesn't matter where you've wandered off to. It doesn't matter where you are in your life right now. Right now, in this moment, Jesus looks at you and says, I know you and I love you. Whether you are that person who's, who's crushed by addiction, who's racked by oppression of anxiety and depression, whether it's you who suffered through a broken family and maybe even if it was you who was at fault, Jesus looks at you and says, I know it, I see it, I love you. If you need a change, if you need a new start, if you are lost in a place that you never thought that you would be, Jesus is ready for you. He's waiting for you. And you don't have to wait any longer. Turn to him. Talk to him. There will be people up here after the service. They come up here every single week and they want nothing more than to sit and pray with you. You came with people who would probably love to hear you talk to them about it. I'll bet you could find a stranger here who would want nothing more than to help you learn. What does that look like for me to turn to Jesus, to talk to him in this? We are ready for you. Um, in John's gospel, chapter one, verses 12 through 13, this is it, then we're out of here. It says this, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. You can be reborn. You can start again. Start today. Jesus, we thank you for this place. And we thank you 
that we live in a world where there is a God who knows everything and loves us immensely and is ready in every way to help us reorient and move to that place in life that we were always meant to be. Help us to follow your lead. It's in your name we pray. Amen.